Is it possible I can just turn down what's in my ear just a little bit? Am I very loud? Maybe. Someone say something. I'm saying something. Oh, that's much better. Yeah. Perfect. Can we still hear you, Tom? I know. Oh, yeah, yeah, fine, fine. Yes, yes. You just faded as he was turning knob two, and I thought, Mm. are they linked? (laughs) (laughs) All right, then. That's much better. In this episode of the series titled Managing Circular Business Models, we're going to look at the environmental concerns and how these are turning business models towards closed loop systems with repair, reuse, rental, e-commerce and circular retailing becoming more commonplace. As always, I'm joined in the studio by my co-hosts, Ian Jindal, Editor-in-Chief of Internet Retailing, and Narvar's Chris Oskins. I'm Katie Searles. I am the editor of Delivery X. And just for some introductions, Ian, do you want to let us know what you get up to? Well, I'm not sure I know. You've, you've done the best intro ever. So that's me. Uh, yes, I run Internet Retailing and... We've been looking a lot at sustainability, circularity, so very much looking forward to chatting about that in this episode. And Chris? Yeah, so I'm Chris Hoskin. I've been with Narvar for about four years. Um, I have responsibility for marketing in the EMEA region, so uh, principally the UK, France and German markets. If you don't know, Narvar are a post-purchase platform, so we focus on customer experience and anything that affects the consumer after the buy button. As well as us in the studio, we're also going to be hearing from some retailers today. Ricky Wilson, VP Global E-Commerce and Digital Operations at Pandora. Steve Irwin, who's the Director of Wolverine Worldwide. And we'll also hear from Mike Hancock's Chief Executive Officer of Yodel. It is becoming clear that awareness of the circular economy is growing and it's being felt in both retailers, large and small, as well as the carriers that help them deliver after the buying button. Retailers are adopting fully circular models or taking parts of it to trial within their business. They're also looking at what happens after the buying button and how that product is delivered to the consumers, whether that be via an electric vehicle or via an e-cargo bike. We heard recently that Amazon are introducing their first micromobility hub based in Hackney, London, to ensure that there is deliveries by walking, deliveries by e-cargo bikes. It seems like everybody is joining the green delivery bandwagon. Mm. Yes, the customers are getting quite involved as well. So they're delivering to each other and wanting that sort of customer-to-customer delivery. Uh, We're also seeing them walking into stores, handing over their vintage product, grabbing more vintage product for a difference in price. And we've seen so much with global businesses like H&M who are baking circularity into their whole business model uh, which is quite a change after the headlines was it three four years ago about them burning four billion dollars worth of stock so circularity is you know touching every part of the retail value chain now i agree everything's perfect everything's perfect in <laughs> other than other than the two, reality other than the reality yeah absolutely so um there's definitely some areas that can be improved. I think one of the things we need to be mindful of is is obviously a, a 
a tremendous amount of greenwashing, I guess, mm. and trying to work out, yeah, what's what's news and what's kind of PR is something that certainly I'm I'm keen on us to do. Um, but definite progress being made for sure. Yeah. And I think consumers on the whole are beginning to make more and more choices as to where they buy from, who they buy from, and that kind of footprint that goes with those decisions. Mm. You did mention greenwashing, though. Mm. You know, as a fully paid up sceptic, then, of course, I recognise that. But I do think we also have to be careful not to do everything down because, you know, you're not going to go from where we are today to perfection overnight. And so... You know, there's a real challenge for retailers. We hear this, actually, in the clips where people are saying we're making steps, we're taking a small step. And what we hear behind the scenes is an incredible amount of work that's going on, but the retailers don't want to say anything for fear of being accused of not being perfect. So we have a, a situation where retailers, especially the grocers, make their money by being perfect at scale, always and everywhere. And we saw this with the grocers not failing over COVID, for example. So they're used to perfection. They take it for granted. And so there really is a lot of culture change needed, openness, transparency, but dare I say a little bit of kindness and forgiveness that a step in the right direction is better than nothing. And I hope actually in this episode we'll hear some of the work that people are doing and realise that, you know, the glass is probably half full on a good day. I think you're spot on, Ian. Absolutely. There's definitely a lot of progress, a lot of great news. And let's hope that that continues. I think when we're talking about grocers especially, they're giving themselves targets that are achievable. We're not talking about exchanging to an electric fleet overnight. Tesco's have said 2030 um, and then 2050 for a net zero. It's it's not like we will be Mm. using walking deliveries and e-cargo by tomorrow or in a year's time it is we've got eight years and then they can bring it forward and say actually we're going to knock 15 years off of that original um, target Um, before we hear from our sort of guests really they should probably introduce themselves so we can before we really get into um, hearing from Ricky Wilson here is how he describes himself I'm Ricky Wilson. I'm the VP of Global E-Commerce and Digital Operations at Pandora Jewellers. We're the world's largest jewellery brand. We're headquartered in Copenhagen, uh, where some of my team are. We operate in over 100 countries through near enough 7,000 points of sale, I guess, and over 2,500 stores that we own and operate. We've got transactional websites in about a fifth of those markets. And our online sales are in the region of about 0.7 billion euros, something like that, which is just over about a quarter of the company revenue. And from a jewellery expert, we'll now hear from Stephen, who knows all about outdoors apparel. Hi, my name's Stephen Irwin. I've been in the e-com industry now for a little over 14 years, working from startup to scale up um, and currently working as e-com director for EMEA in Wolverine worldwide. Wolverine is a portfolio business with a house of uh, more than 12 brands, actually. The main brands that that I focus on kind of day-to-day within the EMEA region is Merrill, which is a uh, primarily outdoor-based business looking after kind of hiking, uh, athletic hike, etc. Then we have Saucony, which is a performance running brand. 
and also has a kind of sister brand within that stable as Saucony Originals, which is a lifestyle and uh, fashion business. Then we have brands from Caterpillar to Hush Puppies uh, within the stable um, as well. And most recently, we uh, acquired Sweaty Betty. Um, so that was back in 2021. So we've heard from two retailers. I guess we need the opinion of a carrier. And we are lucky to have some chat from Mike, who is with Yodel. I have been at Yodel now for almost three years as CEO. It's it's almost my second time round at Yodel, having been here almost 20 years ago. My career sort of splits into two. The first half, I was in food manufacturing with, with Cadbury's and Premier Foods. And then the second half of my career really started in 2000 when I joined the GUS PLC um, as CFO for their home shopping division. And I've been in, in retail since 2000 and the, the very early days of, of the internet. Back in 2000, Yodel had got a different name, but it was part of the portfolio that I was responsible for. Those businesses were sold to the Barclay family in 2003, and fortunately, they gave me my first CEO role in a business that was then renamed as, as Shop Direct. From there, I, I worked in um, Otto UK, running their retail and logistics businesses, and then had a 10-year stint in television shopping uh, under private equity ownership which was very varied and a different form of, of distance retailing. Along the way, I've done a number of chairman and non-executive roles. I've worked for six years at Manchester Airport Group, six years for a Disney licensing company. I worked for a retail shop fitting business as their chairman, and I've worked as a non-executive chairman of the international marketplace business Frugo. And three years ago, I was invited back to to the Yodel business, which is very different from where it was 20 years ago. But I was invited back to be CEO to lead what was hoped to be a transformation and a turnaround in the fortunes of Yodel. Mm. So I think Mike's covered all the bases. As a matter of disclosure, uh, I haven't had a job for nearly 20 years. And the last time I was actually reporting to Mike. So uh, if I'm super deferential, I think what's interesting as well about the conversation we had with Mike, the carrier delivery experiences with the retailer. So in a way, the retailer makes the promises and then you hand over to other partners to deliver those promises for you, literally and metaphorically. I think the really interesting thing with Yodel is who is that final customer? right? Is it the retailer or is it the person that gets the packages at the end? And we will hear more from Mike later, but he discussed with you in detail how they really needed to change their mm. reputation and how that's becoming increasingly important. Um, and one thing that they're doing, which is very exciting, is they are planning to make over 1 million deliveries by e-bike um, and getting diesel vans off the road and we can actually hear a little bit of that discussion from you and Mike now. The delivery through bicycles has got a number of advantages for us. It allows us to get into major city centres that are difficult for the larger vans. It does help us with with our green credentials and you know at Yodel we've we've never 
I guess, bang the drum about being the, the biggest or the best when it comes to those green credentials. We've had a slightly different agenda for the last few years, but we've done whatever we can when we can to make ourselves better. Um, and using the, the bicycle deliveries has, has been a good initiative for that reason. Because I think he makes a very good point there. E-bikes, cargo bikes, walking, they're all just part of a bigger initiative, really. Yeah, I mean, one thing that struck me uh, when chatting to Mike was he made quite an interesting distinction between you know the ends of where you could uh, invest. So, you know, do they buy thousands of e-vehicles or do they chop a couple of miles off every delivery journey, which means they save a lot of fuel that way? So he was quite, I think, sort of hard-nosed about running the numbers of where the benefits come rather than just following bits and bobs. And, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, the hub in Hackney, perfect for e-bikes. But if you live in the Pennines, then I haven't seen a battery big enough to get me up and down <laughs> some of those hills with a big parcel. So, you know, just a switch metaphor, it is horses of courses, not just bikes and vans. Yeah, absolutely. Horses would be very efficient and very green, I think, if everything was delivered with horses um, for courses. The focus on e-bikes in a big metropolitan area makes absolute sense because if we look at it from the consumer side, you know, they're, they're after that convenience that might often be a really rapid delivery. I think that's the perfect storm for, you know, modes such as a, as an e-bike. But mm -hmm. as you say, Ian, you know, there there are vast populations where that's just not going to work. And Yodel yeah. being a, you know, a massive business with kind of national scale, they obviously have to work out, mm. you know, all of the areas where they can make some inroads into uh, into circular and sustainability. Mm. And we also have, of course, you know, we're not operating in a vacuum. It's not just technology plus services. Deliveries in the real world, and in that real world, you have local authorities with their low traffic networks, investing in bike lanes, restricting traffic, restricted delivery hours. So, you know, if you look at this across not just the UK, but across Europe, the physicality of retail, getting products to people where they live, where they work, where they want to drop off and collect, is one of those problems that, that's nice to talk about for five minutes of dinner, but you're, you're quite glad it's not your day-to-day -day job because it's just actually really really hard yeah it's it's really interesting we've, we've spoke about london but many other cities are introducing low traffic mm -hmm. neighborhoods their own charging congestion zone paris wants to be a 15-minute city but to take it back to the rural point of view i only live 30 minutes outside london and we're not going to see any cargo bike or someone walking it is going to be the old-fashioned diesel mm -hmm. van and so for people like Yodo, for companies like Yodo, they have to have yeah. a wider plan. And we can hear from Mike on what their wider agenda is. What we've been trying to do is do the basics really well. You know, we're not a company that's got hundreds of millions to invest in electric vehicles. And I'm not yet convinced that that is the right thing to do for dis distribution companies anyway. Some people are. But, but that hasn't been what we've been doing. What we've been trying to do is to reduce the mileage that we travel with the vehicles that we've got. And we, again, we've used technology as a common theme here. We've put technology in all of our main cabs that allow us to map the best routes and to monitor the driver's behavior so that they, they don't exceed speed limits and they don't have excessive braking and we get more fuel economy. 
the driver's app again is all about traveling the shortest distance to be able to deliver a parcel and those are fairly basic things to do we have champion bicycle deliveries we've touched on that we've developed uh, hydro treated vegetable oil as an alternative to diesel and we power a lot of the shunters in our main sortation centers now with that and again you know that is using 100% renewable and sustainable waste so that has been something that's been relatively straightforward for us to do so we've done a number of things and what that's allowed us to do is to reduce the the CO2 per tonne per parcel now for five years running. So it may not be the sexiest PR headline about we've bought 100 electric vehicles, but we have been effective in what we've been doing. We are about to appoint our first um, sustainability manager as a person within the company. And we have to take it seriously because the clients ask us to take it seriously. I'm not yet convinced the clients are making the biggest of decisions based on sustainability. You know, price is still the most important thing when when you talk to most retailers, but it's definitely going up the agenda in terms of the decision-making tick boxes that they're looking for. Mm, Up the agenda, not entirely the first thing, but again, you wouldn't expect that. Unless the company exists to be green, then they're existing for their reason but also having to be green as well. The other point is, you know, this doesn't just sit with the carrier. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, there's also, there's an obligation by the end customer, the consumer, if you like, as well as the merchant. So, you know, I'm thinking about as basic things as, you know, printing labels in every single delivery, a returns label, when we already know that, you know, on average, depending on the vertical market that um, the merchant is catering for, that it's, you know, more than half of those are not going to get used. Probably around about 90% of them are never going to be used. Mm. So there's a quick win there in terms of, you know, the printing of paper and labels, which, by the way, the retailer is paying for whether they're used or not. So that's that's one thing. The other piece is, you know, can retailers help carriers by being slightly smarter about the way something, you know, is delivered or is delivered back if it's a return. So smarter disposition. So that needs to be that needs to involve kind of data capture on the front end. And that has to come from the merchant. It can't, you know, that's not, not something that's within the carrier's kind of gift. So to your point around good news, I think there's lots of amazing initiatives going on but it's not just the carrier's obligation it's consumers it's merchants it's carriers it's it's everyone that needs to be doing these things i think we've we've already mentioned these things cannot be done in a silo they cannot be done individually and mike touched on it there it has to go back to the supply chain as well like returns is we know it's a pain point printing all this stuff that doesn't need to be printed. But even just from a point of how these items are made, that is an issue. So even when the product starts going right back to the manufacturing, that's a bit of an issue. Um, Talking about companies that are trying to be green from the get-go, Patagonia, they've been making clothes from recycled plastic since 1993. And it's now just companies turning on to that, to, to changing over to organic cotton. The, this eco denim that's popping mm. up all over the high street. Clothing companies are are trying to make a bit of a difference and make a bit of change. And we can hear from Stephen from Wolverine on what they are doing for their sustainability agenda. Yeah, I think this is a, is always an interesting one, right? It was 
sustainability over the last kind of maybe five years has almost been a buzzword around the boardroom in, in the sense of, oh, we need to have a sustainability story or a sustainability campaign. And for the Wolverine brands, um, sustainability isn't a buzzword. It isn't a campaign. It's it's, it's basically built into the business structure and, and how they operate. Um, you know, I think with, with all brands that work in a manufacturing business, there's there's more efficiencies that can always be made across the entire supply chain. And that's that's a continued focus for the business in terms of their sourcing strategies and how they source. They're, they're geared towards a, a more sustainable proposition. And equally, when, when we're kind of forecasting and looking at our growth aspirations, we're not trying to outperform the market and drive more demand in the market than than, than we see because that's also kind of promoting something that's kind of a, a slightly unsustainable approach to, to, to kind of product usage. The the big part that I think Wolverine does very well though is is it kind of focuses on sustainability within the community and 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 how we can kind of help make our consumers be more responsible with with the products that they that they buy. So kind of taking better care of those products so that they last the the kind of the, the test of time. In particular, you know, with our hiking boots as well, you know, there's 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 care guides and things that help you kind of take better care of that product so that, that something that may only last six months, if you left them sitting out in the rain after a, a muddy hike and uh, the leather starts to crack, then become 12 months because you have the proper care guides in, in, in terms of how to use that or even longer, um, you know. So there's a, an approach to sustainability throughout the organization, whether it be, like I say, supply chain, product sourcing, product usage or even how customers look after the goods that they purchase from us. Yep, spot on. Uh, It'll be like Japan where, you know, we venerate the repair, renew and so on. If you've got a quality product that is made to last, the consumer has a role to ensure it lasts. And it's a bit like whether you're maintaining your car or eating healthily so you live an active, healthy life. There is this idea that buy, use, dump is going away and it's more consider by maintain and use. So I think this is where you mentioned Patagonia, but same with Wolverine brands again like Sweaty Bay that have ongoing conversations with the customer that aren't just about buy more, buy more, buy more. Those have the opportunities, I think, to both match the customer's concerns and, if you like, be in lockstep with them. So you know it's very, very positive to hear that. I think that's driven by the consumer as well. We've we've touched on a little bit the reuse and recycle, re-commerce marketplace, but I think consumers also want to know what their products are made of. And if they are made of recycled material, i.e. a swimsuit out of like sea rubbish, that's um, somehow that's a that's a tick. And I think brands are looking at how they can use existing material to make something new. And that's certainly something that's happening at Pandora and Ricky has explained for us. We are a producer. Significant amount of our initial focus and the benefits that we can get to is the uh, the improvements in terms of what we can do at that side of our, you know, in that side of our supply chain and our, and our cycle. And I think we, you know, we're pretty surprising in terms of what we are able to do and what we have done and what our ambitions are around our sustainability side of things. When it comes to e-commerce specifically, firstly, there's a piece around inventory. And now we're relatively lucky that uh, if we can't shift the inventory, much of it, we melt down and we make something new with it. So there's some part around the materials themselves are inherently reusable for us. 
Yeah, so go Pandora. <laughs> but what's interesting is with with Pandora, it, it's sort of invisible because, you know, a lump of silver is a lump of silver. I can't tell the difference. I can't always tell where it's come from. So, you know, we're taking their word, and I, of course, totally believe them, about the provenance of their silver. I know they do a lot of ethical sourcing and uh, local artisans, you know, working the silver as well. But when you, you mentioned earlier on the sea rubbish or sea plastic, we see in the news a lot that a lot of uh, our recycling doesn't get recycled, so closing that circle. We also, Chris, you mentioned earlier on about greenwashing. The claims are easy to make, but increasingly people are demanding that they have that, not just transparency, but also that assurance that is really there. So I think one of the new areas we're going to see a lot, I think we're covering it in, in another episode, is this idea of supply chain transparency, visibility, because ultimately, as the consumer gets more and more savvy, they're going to expect that, but in a way that's that's easy for them. I think it's not even just the products. You're talking about plastic filling lotions and and things actually being recycled. We we can put things in our cardboard box. We can put things in our plastic bins, but. The thing around e-commerce is there's so much plastic involved in this packaging. There's so much secondary packaging. If you order something online, it sometimes comes in three bags and then a box. Mm. And the thing uh, Ricky touched on as well to add to their sustainability chat is what they do about the little plastic baggies that these little charms come in. I think there are some bits which I know that we're not happy with and we don't yet have a solution to. And so certainly during COVID and still now we have... Uh, we still send our charms out in a plastic bag for, for, for health reasons, things like that. And we prefer not to have those poly bags when they go out. Um, but we need to be able to get a, a solution to how we can transport these tiny things across thousands of miles and then still find the right thing and dispatch the right thing. So there's a whole sort of um, practicality thing associated with these, these small charms. And we need to find a solution to that. We're also clearly working hard in terms of rolling out and scaling out kick and collect operation. And the important thing for that is that both from a consumer perspective, if you order, you can pick it up the same day because we pick from our stores and so we use store inventory to be able to do that. Um, but clearly, of course, it also helps us in terms of less packaging parcels, miles and roads and things like that. When people are already making a visit to, to that area of town and they pick those up in the first place. But I think we recognise that when it comes to fulfilment, we need to meet the needs in many ways. Um, so those needs may be some customers at some point in time might want it fast. Some might want it cheap or for free even. Some might want it more convenient in whichever convenience looks like for them. And some will want it more green. And I think we need to do something around what more green is. There's something in the plan about how we can do that and find the right partner to be able to work with. But um, certainly they're the four aspects that we feel that we ought to be able to cover when it comes to our uh, sort of carrier or fulfilment options for consumers. It's, mm. it's an interesting point, the click and collect being sustainable. It's something I'd never considered. Parcel lockers, great. But actually ordering something online and going into store, if you're in town anyway, it stops a journey. Yep. It stops a diesel van having to run up and down the street. So this is, again, something that consumers can do. I think it's a really interesting point. And 
I think it's really confusing. So there's there's some evidence, there's some research that would suggest that buying online and having a carrier deliver it is more efficient than click and collect. And then there's other evidence that's suggesting that buying something online and having it shipped from the store, as, as Ricky mentioned, again, is more efficient than uh, buying online and having it delivered to you. Mm-hmm. And ultimately... This is part of the problem, I think. It's really confusing. Does the consumer know? Does the consumer actually want a label in the box? Do they want to have to go and find another box to have to repackage it, to have it sent back home? Which of these things are the best? Picking a delivery method in the basket, you know, a few brands are beginning to disclose a slightly slower, more um, more sustainable or more efficient uh, delivery method. And I think until such time that there's like real visibility on carbon footprints on in the same way that we can look at the ingredients on a meal that we buy until we get to that point, I think confusion's going to reign. And um, mm. I don't think that helps really. So I sort of agree, but my archetype here is either a worker or a mum with a couple of kids. And both of those have efficiency algorithms built in. So if you're a worker, you aren't really thinking, you know, is it my carbon footprint or not? You think, I walk past that store on the way back to the tube slash train station. It's easier to do it then than go home, get in the car, drive, etc. So I think people are optimizers. And then when you look at, you know, if you're running a family and you're having to juggle the kids get them dressed, stop them being sick all over the place, feed them energy lows, clothing. Just when you look at the sheer amount of organisations needed just to get through the day, then you recognise things that fit in with the customer's day, they latch onto quite quickly. So we have seen, I think it was three years ago, we re- we look at the delivery options that retailers were making available to customers, and it peaked at about 27 options. Mm-hmm. And they were things like next day, next day, if a Saturday before 12, before 8, one hour. And we were laughing in the office thinking, you know, imagine to design that page, it's not going to happen. The options have been dropping off. It's just next day, day after. So I think we'll find a balance. But I do take your point that if we just go out in these micro initiatives, push them as if they are singly the answer to everything, we're just pushing too many things to the customer and it's just making you know, it's not their problem to sort out our operations i i completely agree and and for those brands where there is enormous scale you know just blindly saying buy online um, and have it shipped from store that that will cater for a small percentage of their customers but not all of them there is definitely no one size fits all for for exactly. these huge brands when you look at uh, pandora they in every country, they use every carrier, they have every customer type for every purchasing occasion. So they're having to play the numbers. I thought what was interesting about Ricky's comments as well is it gives us a privileged window into this balancing, juggling, you know, tweaking various knobs and pulling levers just to try and move forward. It's not as simple as initiative A or B. And, you know, we, we talk about this circularity, this sustainability, to me, this feels like last century when time and motion people came to the fore, or you had business re-engineering people who tweaked every knob and squeezed every pip in order to get these mythical, scalable efficiencies. 
if we take those methodologies into sustainability, it is the same argument because we're saying now that improve everything, reduce the cost of the inputs, reduce the cost of operation, reduce the waste, etc. So there are lots of skills we have in business that now I think are coming together, but for the sustainability agenda as much as the efficiency agenda, which of course still exists. To touch on the reducing waste as well, we've touched on it a few times throughout today's podcast, but Mike, our final clip, is going to talk about the decluttering trend. And so we've seen consumers do it through apps such as Vinted, eBay, selling stuff they no longer want to brands going on to marketplaces to either get rid of things that have been returned things that haven't sold in the first place. And that in itself is circular. There's this trend of marketplaces that are suddenly popping up and that in itself is sustainable and Mike can give us some insight from Yodel's point of view. I think Yodel have done customer-to-customer deliveries for a long time but just hadn't got really sizable volume in that space. And we saw it as an opportunity and certainly the pandemic has lifted those volumes. I think through the pandemic, people have got some time on their hands at home and there was a lot of decluttering. Um, there was also a lot of uh, homemaking. You know, I, I was in a television shopping channel that was focused on craft. And so I know that people like to make things as part of their craft hobby and, and then potentially sell them on through marketplaces like Etsy, for instance. And I think we saw more of that through the pandemic than we'd we'd ever seen before. And we have partnered with a number of clients who are strong in this space, eBay, uh, Vinted, and so on. And we've seen really strong growth through the pandemic and even up to to the current date in C2C transactions. I think um, secondhand fashion, I don't know what the numbers are, but from what I see, it must be huge and growing really quickly. You know, I don't think there's any stigma attached to buying secondhand products these days. He's right about that. My introduction to it was um, with my kids. So my daughters were just buying and selling things on Depop. So anything that was A, too small for me because I'd gotten fat, and B, from the last century, they were selling it as hashtag vintage. And all of a sudden, I've got these teenage uh, kids that aren't costing me any money and, in fact, are becoming mini experts on, you know, nylon Adidas uh, tracksuits, which they buy on eBay, wash, model, write up on Depop, sell to profit. So I'm all for that. <laughs> and, um, you know, I wish my son did as well. But uh, the. The other thing we're seeing then is the clothing brands leaning into this because one of the big challenges is, you know, if I see Chris's listing telling me he's selling a pair of Jordan Air or something or other, how do I know they're not fake? And so we're seeing increasingly the brands leaning in, the retailers or the retailers saying, we will now guarantee the product or give you its provenance. And so it started with customer to customer, but now we're seeing the brands and the marketplace and the technology really supporting that customer to customer reselling. It's very exciting. For a luxury brand, why would you want one of your bags that's simply last season going for a couple of hundred less on eBay when you could be reselling it as <laughs> sort of, yeah, 
selling it as remodeled and stick it on eBay as of guaranteed. Course. The thing is, if you love the brand that much and you're adding to your collection as your first piece, you're probably going to want something else as well. And I think it allows the brands, you know, they talk so much about heritage, their atelier, their long-lasting products, the fact that it is harking back to the 50s, da-da-da. And also you say, well, they're now living that marketing claim. It is real. So it dials up the authenticity, it dials up the craft, and it speaks to their passionate consumers who are noting all these details themselves anyway. So it really is bringing things much closer together. I mean, ultimately, what we're talking about here in terms of a luxury good is basically a longer life, so effectively reuse over and over again. I think it's a real dilemma for luxury brands because they need to be putting new product into the market all of the time, and they certainly don't want to be putting items into a secondary market where that brand is devalued if it's an item that hasn't been sold. So I think for many brands, the rise of C2C, the rise of, dare I say it, the kind of maturity of these marketplace, they feel like they can trust that their brand can belong there. As you say, I know that eBay do the authentication on sneakers and all that stuff. So yeah, I think I think it's one of the success stories and hope there is uh, many more that have this sustainable kind of leaning because clearly, as Ricky mentioned, there's there's still a way to go, um, but small marginal gains will make a big difference. I mean, I think what's exciting from my perspective is that at the top of the programme, you could have looked at this like a problem, a challenge, a negative thing to be solved and then move on to some nice stuff like marketing or doing ads. But I think what we've heard is it's driving innovation and it's driving service development, it's driving new ways of longer and more uh, sustained conversations with customers. So, you know, in this whole episode, all I've heard is good ideas from good people doing good stuff. I mean, it's actually a very positive session. Thank you, Katie. <laughs> Thank you for that together. You're very welcome. I was just thinking, that's a cheery way to wrap up, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not going to be able to add to that. That's great. So in this episode... Oh, that was my engagement ring. Sorry. <laughs> it's, it's, don't bang anything on the table. Immediately bangs ring on table. Excellent. Oh, I'm a bit rusty at this.